All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to see everyone. Kabbalah and Coffee is sponsored by Ed Zinn in loving memory of his mom, Arden. So I want to begin today with a conversation about programming. Not about what's on the TV <laughs> this week. That's different type of programming. What I'm talking about as far as programming is, let's say, computer programming. And let's say, let's just say that you were looking to create a game. A game where people, there would be an objective to get from point A to point B and accomplish certain tasks along the way. And part of that experience, right, in this game is that people shouldn't head down certain paths. In other words, there are certain paths that they should head down and there's, you know, various options and people can choose in the game, you know, where they go and how, but there are certain like no-go zones where the participants, the players of the game are not intended to go. Like they shouldn't go there. So imagine you're creating this game. Now you want the players You want the players to head toward the right destination. Now, let's just say it's not just a game. Let's say there's an actual real life, I don't know, application or advantage for the players to get from point A to point B, i.e. the destination. So you're invested in the players getting from wherever they start to the intended destination, and you do not want them to fall off, you know, fall off the track and get into a space where they shouldn't get into. So you're invested in them, but you create those spaces where they shouldn't go in order to make the experience, well, to make the experience full and rich. Because if it was just, you know, like the, uh, when you go to the airport here in Atlanta, they have that train where you go from the terminal, from the whatever, from where, where you come in to the, uh, to the various, Terminals, so from like the entrance point to like A, B, C, D, whatever. So there's not much area where, where <laughs> there's no, not a lot of deviance from that. You, you're going either, you know, the main gate, the main terminal to A, B, C, D, and then and then in reverse. There's not not a lot of room for error over there. So it's not much of a game. If you want to make a game that's engaging, interactive, that challenges the players, so you have to have a little bit of uh, adversity in there. You got to hardwire some adversity or program some adversity, some challenges, some, uh-oh, this looks exciting. This looks like uh, a path, but no, it's not the right path. It's not where you're supposed to be headed down. It's kind of like a maze, right? A maze that you would draw for, I don't know, a kid or, or anybody. And it has one path that will get you from the starting point to the finish line, to the finish, to the finish point. Um, but there's a other pass that will hit a dead end along the way. What's the goal? Again, the goal is to make it something that's engaging because if there's just one path, guess what? It's not called a maze. It's just, you know, follow the line to the destination. There's not much excitement, challenge, skill, joy, exhilaration. If there's one path and you're following it, 
But if there are multiple paths and some of them are leading to dead ends, i.e. not intended, don't lead where you need to go, that makes the choosing or discovering the right path that much more enriching, meaningful, and exhilarating. Now, this is my attempt at giving an imperfect, well, my attempt is to give an example, but it, it is an imperfect example of the way God programmed the world that we live in, where God has a destination in mind for us, but doesn't make it so simple for us, right? It's not like, okay, we start off here and God wants us to get here or there, and there's a clear path from point A to point B, just go down that path, no big deal, you won't be bothered along the way, you'll get there soon, you know, eh, the next few hours you'll get there, no problem, and when you get there, don't forget to give a call to, to let us know you got there. That's not the way life works, right? Life is much more complicated than that, life is much more challenging. When it comes to life, the life that we live, as you and I know, it is fraught with challenge, fraught with difficulty. At every corner, at every bend in the road, there is another path and another path and another option and a dangerous option. Da danger lurks everywhere. Like God said to Cain in the first counseling therapy session in humankind, right? The first session, Cain is angry at his brother, Abel. Cain is angry and is feeling sad for himself and all sorts of negative emotions. And God says, take it easy. Cain. Well, he does, doesn't say that. He says, Cain, don't be so upset. Don't be, don't be angry. Don't be despondent. Right? If you do what you need to do, then I will accept your offering. And there's no reason to look at anybody else. Just do what you need to do. Then God says a famous expression, sin croucheth at the door. I don't know why croucheth gets an ith and door doesn't. Maybe we should do croucheth at the doorith, maybe, if that's a thing. But nonetheless, sin is sin. The, the capacity or the, the possibility to take a wrong turn is at every, really at every moment, at every turn, there's a, there's a choice which way to go. And who programs, who wires in that choice for the negative? The same God that has, it a, that has a clear objective of where we should go, i.e. a positive path in mind. The same God that wants us to go to that positive destination also programs all of those potholes and cliffs and landmines along the way. And the question is why? Well, I gave the answer before. Because if there were no challenges, then life would be easy. And if you're wondering, well, then what's, but what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what God wanted. Because honestly, God already has that, but he kept on going, pushing the envelope with creating new concepts. In other words... There is a place called heaven that has angels. Angels have a clear mission and there's a clear path and there are no obstructions. There are no pitfalls. There are no cliffs and there are no potholes, right? Potholes, cliffs, or landmines along the way. So that already exists. But God said, 
let's keep on innovating. Let's keep on creating. Let's push the envelope on this whole creation thing. And let's, the, let's see if we can create something where the odds, not the odds, where the, the stakes are up that much higher. Let's up the stakes to, a, to an incredible degree. Let's make it challenging. Let's make it complicated. Let's make it meaningful. Let's make it exhilarating. Let's make the highs really high. Let's make the lows really low. Let's pump up the volume on this experience. 8K high definition, right? Real life, that's where we are. So God programs not only the positive, not only the holy, not only what he desires for us into the architecture of creation, but God also programs the exact opposite. All of the stuff that he doesn't want us to do, that he doesn't want us to choose, that he doesn't want us to get stuck in, he also programs it. Why? We just talked about why. More challenging, right? The greater the challenge, the greater the payoff. It's the way it is. Aside from the fact that God wanted to create a realm that wasn't automatically paradise, that we should then transform into paradise despite the odds. So for various reasons, which really are all interconnected, it may sound similar to what I said before with a little bit of a little bit of a, uh, a knage, a little bit of a, a, a twist. It's the same, same core ideas. The, the point that I want to bring out is that there is what God wants, which is the positive, the good, the blessing for us, the destination. And then there's what God implements in addition to that in order to make it interesting. So how do we characterize that interesting stuff? Does God want it? Or does God not want it? Well, you can't say that God doesn't want it because God made it. So if he made it, it sounds like he wants it, right? If God really didn't want it at all, it wouldn't be here. Does that make sense? Yeah? So the capacity for evil, right? The capacity, I'm not speaking about any specific element or choice, but the capacity, the general capacity to step on a landmine, to fall off a cliff, to, you know, fall into a, or get, roll into a pothole along the way. The general possibility for that, we can't say that God doesn't want it to be. Because if God didn't want it to be, it wouldn't be. If God really absolutely did not want it, it wouldn't be in the script. It wouldn't be in the code. So God wants it, but here's where it gets a little tricky. God wants it in an unwanted way. If you got my email last night, the title of the class today is Unwanted. So God wants it as an unwanted part of creation. Does that make sense? God wants it to be there, but God wants it to be for us and relative to, the, relative to us and relative to the entire cosmic scheme. It should remain in the realm of that which is unwanted and rejected. Yes? Makes sense? Okay. Which means that in life, there are the things, let's make, it, let's make it about us for a second, or let's just personalize it, because we also have the same, we can experience the same type of dynamics in our own lives. There are things that we want, and things that we don't want, 
but we have because on some level we need them, even though we don't want them. Does that make sense? Sort of? Like taxes? I'm kidding. Right, so what, what is an example? Kidding, not kidding, but that's not something we're creating. Right, it's, this is, so there are things that we want because we actually want them and we're excited about them and it, it speaks to us and our values. We really want it. And then things that we don't want but we have because we need. We need them. Getting back to the, to the, to the cosmic spiritual example for a second. Let me bring it back to God. Um, God doesn't want evil for the sake of evil. right? That's not a thing. Right? God is good. God wants good for us. God wants the best for us. God doesn't want evil. So why is there evil? the choice for evil in this world. Why does that exist? Because since God wants what he wants, in order to get that, i.e. the meaning, the choice, the exhilaration, the accomplishment, you need the contrast. You need the choice for evil to exist. So it has to be also programmed into the code, into the architecture, into the fabric of creation as well. But it's not desired for itself. It's desired in an un, it's wanted in an unwanted way. It's more that it's it's more, I would say, it's more needed than wanted. Does that make sense? Yeah? It's like and and apologies for me imposing a need on God. Who am I to say what God needs? I'm re trying to reverse engineer this as, as Kabbalah does, right? In other words, this is what we have, and this is what we know, and this is, these are the conclusions that we can draw, right? This is what God wants. God wants a world in which we, on our own, choose good out of an option, uh, with the option to choose the opposite, which makes it meaningful and makes the destination that much more um, intense and exhilarating. Right? So therefore, God needs there to be the other option that God doesn't want, but it's needed to be there. So it's almost like, begrudgingly, if you will, God makes, creates the possibility, or at least the absence, which we, the absence of light, which we call shadow, evil, darkness, whatever, right? In order, in order that the rest of it flows the way God wants it to flow. Which means that when a person chooses the opposite of the right path, it's kind of like God says, shucks, right? Oh no, <laughs> they, they stepped off the, the side or they stepped into the bottle. That was, not the, that was not the way it was supposed to be. Okay, time to pick yourself back up and get back on track. Right? That's kind of the way it is. It's not something that's good. Oh, if God put it in, it must be good. That's not, that's not the way it works. Not everything that's here is meant to be engaged in. So there's a verse. It's interesting. I believe it's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's, really, it's a really interesting series of verses in the Torah. The Torah says there might at some point arise a prophet. Right? A prophet. Chabad is non-profit, so nothing to worry about. But look, there might arise a prophet 
Who is, I know I do what I can. Steve, you should have heard me yesterday. I'm just saying. All right, can't, can't share now is in the context of the parasha, but getting back. So um, the Torah says a story about a prophet who might arise at some point and might start predicting things that might come to pass and might display miraculous powers. Well, that sounds pretty, pretty amazing, the Torah says. However, if at any point this individual tells you to do something that violates the Torah, right? Either add something, take away something, oh, this no longer applies, whatever it is, if it's against Torah, the Torah says, that is the red flag that this is a false prophet. Do not listen to the prophet. Even if they showed you miracles, what there's, I mean, how else could they have pulled off that thing if not for having these powers? So therefore, they must be trustworthy. And when they say that, you know, this is no longer applicable or you can change that, or you, then we should listen probably. The Torah says no. Now, it's anticipating the question. The Torah itself anticipates the question. If you're going to wonder, then why then does this person have these powers? You should know. It's because God is testing you to see if you will follow his word or if you will get carried away with the magic tricks, right? Will you remain committed to God's will? God's mind doesn't change, right? God is eternal. And the Torah that he wrote is not like one day he woke up and said, you know what, let's try this out, right? That's not how we look at Torah. I should probably say that as a general introduction for this point, right? Torah, God is eternal, Torah is eternal. Okay, so getting back to this point. Um, getting back to this point. So God is giving this prophet powers specifically for the purpose of the test Remember those tests? It would go beep. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Remember that one? This is only a test. Had it been a real emergency, blah, blah, blah. Okay. This is only a test, says God. Don't be fooled by the false prophet or by this individual who is displaying powers. Just because they have powers doesn't mean you should follow. Which tells us a message about life in general. Just because it's there doesn't mean that God wants you to do it. That's the rule of thumb, right? Just because, well, if I believe in God and I believe in divine providence, so by divine providence, the fact that the cash register was left open by divine providence, right? Oh my God, I needed that exact amount of money. By divine providence, right? The shopkeeper stepped away from the cash register. I don't know if anybody even uses open cash registers anymore, but work with me on an 80s, 1980s example, please, right? Oh my gosh, I needed this exact amount of money. The cashier walked away. The register is open. The bills are right there. Again, it's the 80s. There are no security cameras, right? Maybe I should take it. God has given me exactly what I need. I prayed for it this morning, and now it's being delivered. That's one way to look at it. The second way to look at it is, yes, you really need it, and the opportunity is there, and beep. This is a test of, I don't know what we would call it. This is a test. Do not take something that is not yours, right? That beep was for the, right, the test beep. 
just to clarify different types of beeps, that was an emergency test beep, right, that you, we should not take it. Which means, very clearly, just to state it very clearly, just because it's available, just because it's possible, just because it's there, doesn't mean that's what God wants. It could be that God wants us to look at it, to be excited about it, and to say, nah, not going to do it. That's the whole purpose, perhaps. Again, your mileage may vary. Every situation is different. Um, but if, if it's wrong, then certainly it's the latter scenario. God does not want us to engage with it. God wants us to not engage with it. Classic biblical story. Or not from the five books, but from the books of the prophets. We read it in yesterday's Haftorah. So as some of you may know, yesterday we read the portion of Zachar in the Torah. So let me explain. On the Shabbat before Purim, we always read the section from Deuteronomy. It's like, I don't know, four or five verses, three, four or five verses, a very short reading about the mitzvah to remember what Amalek, the Amalekites, did to the Jewish people shortly after the Exodus, where the Amalekites started up and provoked and tried to, um, uh, well, not try, they, they, they waged war against the Jewish people, and miraculously the Jewish people were able to be victorious. But Amalek represents the enemy that is not at all, you know, doesn't care about provoking, doesn't care about even losing, just wants to get, just wants to get you, just wants to be a thorn in your side, etc., and Amalek becomes this paradigm, you know, we don't know who Amalek is today, but Amalek becomes this, this kind of um, archetype of, of the enemy, whether it's external, right, or even internal. According to Kabbalah, Amalek is the inner doubt and cynicism that we possess, you know, when we get excited about something and there's another inner voice that says, come on, don't be so excited about it. Who, who, who do you think you are? What, you're a tzaddik suddenly? Take it easy, right? That inner voice that slows us down from our spiritual um, um, ascent, that's also the notion of, of Amalek within. And the point is Amalek can mean many things in many different contexts. But we always read the section of Amalek, the Shabbat before Purim. So Purim this year is this Thursday, and, this Thursday night and Friday. So it's, it's this week, the end of this week. So this, yesterday, Shabbat, we read the section of Zachar. And why did I mention the section of Zachar? Why did I mention, what was I saying right before Zachar? Who remembers? Can somebody remind me of what I was saying right before that? Let's see if you were listening. I'm kidding. Let's see if I can remember. Zachar, remember. Amalek. Oh, here we go. So the Haftorah talks about, we always do the Haftorah similar to themes of the parasha, just to explain. The Torah reading that we read is from the five books. The Haftorah is from the book, from the works of scripture, like uh, Nach, Nevi'im, well, mainly Nevi'im, the books of the prophets. And so we read yesterday the story in the book of Samuel about the first king, the first Jewish king, King Saul. King Saul was tasked with, once and, once and for all, getting rid of Amalek, which then was an actual people. So he was tasked at this point in time we have a Jewish king, we have an army, it's time to get rid of Amalek. I'm not going to get into the, that may raise questions for you. I'm just reporting the story, so hold the questions on the story for right now for a second. He's told to get rid of Amalek once and for all. All right. 
And so he wages war. They have a war against Amalek, and the, the Jewish people are victorious. And then the next day, the, um, the, next day the, the, the prophet Samuel heads over to the battlefield and says to Saul, so you got it done? Yeah, we got it done. You got rid of Amalek? Yeah. So why do I hear all of these animals? Why do I hear, like, what's, what's going on? He left the king alive, Agag. He left the animals alive. He says, why the animals? He said, well, I figured that we could take these animals and offer them as a sacrifice to God. Like, what, what greater transformation could there be than Amalekite animals being sacrificed as, a, as an offering to Hashem, to God? So Samuel says a powerful line. The prophet to the king, the prophet says to the king, he says, does God want your sacrifices or does God want you to listen? <laughs> right? <laughs> you have all these ideas in your head. I think the best way to do this is... Anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not raising this to get into the nitty-gritty of the story. But the point is simply like this. Just because there's an opportunity does not necessarily mean that God wants us to take the opportunity. Sometimes it's to reject the opportunity. Right? Just because the cash register is open and the bills are counted out in front of us doesn't mean that that's divine providence. Oh my gosh! Incredible! This is what God wants. No, God wants us to be excited about it, perhaps, or tempted by it, and then say, don't want to do it. Which gets us back to wanted and unwanted. There are things in this universe that God wants us to do and things that, are, that God does not want us to do. Those are the wanted and unwanted categories. But on some level, God also wants the unwanted, right? God wants there to be a test. So God puts the unwanted, so God wants the unwanted or needs the unwanted in order for there to be the challenge, to be the test, but it's not wanted in the same way. So there are things that are really wanted and things that are not so really wanted, but almost needed for that which is wanted. So if the want is to get to the destination safely, despite the challenge, then what's needed is for there to be challenge along the way. But that's not really wanted. It's kind of needed. And it's almost if you want to, you know, throw a layer of, paint a layer of emotion on top of this, which is not really fair to God because we're not trying to create a God in our image, God forbid, but just to kind of humanize the conversation. It would kind of be like God is begrudgingly, again, I'm not actually saying that's how it, that's how it is, but it's almost like, from our vantage point, it's kind of like a begrudging, like, like, shoot, like, darn, I have to do this. I have to put the danger in between along the way to make the journey that much more enriching, meaningful, exhilarating, purposeful, challenging, etc. I have to do this. I really hope they don't fall into it, but I have to do this, but it's not what God wants. An example, you know, just a, a different, like a radical, I don't know, like a, a different type of example of this, wanted and unwanted. I once saw Rabbi Steinsaltz. He wrote... In his commentary on Tanya, he used the, the example of a cup, right? The example of a cup. He said a cup has an, in, not like a cup, a cup, right? A cup. A cup has an inside and an outside, right? So when you have a cup, so what do you want? 
the inside or the outside? Now that's a loaded question, or that's a complicated question, because today we can buy a cup just for the outside. It looks nice on the shelf. Oh, it's so pretty, right? Oh, it, 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 it'll enhance my decor. It's got the flowers, it's got my initials on it, whatever. Oh, look at that, it's so nice, which is true. But from a utilitarian perspective, when you buy a cup, you want it for the inside, right? You want it because it's going to hold, in my case, if you can see the bubbles, get a little seltzer to get this, <laughs> get this uh, party started, right? So, yeah, it's, it's for the inside because the inside is holding the contents. The outside, I don't need the outside, I just need the inside. But as Rabbi Steinsels points out in this, in this example, you can't have an inside without an outside, right? You can't have the inside of the cup without the outside, right? Go try to create an inside and not have right, a vessel's inside to hold without there being an outside. It's impossible. So not to say that it's impossible for God to create light without darkness, good without evil, right? Blessing without curse. Who am I to say that, God, that it's exactly, hey, look at that. Hey, guy. All right. So, right, far be it from me to say that God couldn't pull that off, right? Because certainly God could. But at least the way it unfolds is the format that this world takes is that if you have one, you're going to have the other. If you have what you want, you'll also have some of what you don't want as well. That's the, that's the way it is. So when God creates the world, God creates things that he wants and things that he doesn't want, but kind of needs in order to get what he wants. I, I don't want to make this more complicated, but there's really three dimensions. There's what you want. There's what you really want, the end goal. Then there's what you want only in order to get to what you really want. And then there's what you don't want but need in order to get what you want. Does that make sense? Does that make any sense? Do that again. Three levels, from the highest to the lowest. There's what you actually really, truly, deeply want. That would be the end game. That's what you really want. Then there's what you want in order to get what you really want. And then there's what you don't want, but you need in order to get what you want. So, for example, let's talk about the story of the guy who goes on vacation to the island. And he sees, I've told this before, and he sees... He go, he's on vacation, he rents a villa, whatever it is, and then he goes down to the shore and he decides on this day of his vacation, this businessman, he decides he's going to go fishing. So he gets a fishing rod, whatever, he rents one, maybe he brought it. He goes down and he starts fishing. And he sees next to him, there's a guy, seems like a local, right? Seems like a guy who does this. So he says, ah, oh, Hey, here's my, let me introduce myself. My name is this. What's your name? Blah, blah, blah. They've been talking. You live here. Yeah. So what do you do? He says, I fish. That's it. You fish? Yeah. What else do you do? That's it. I fish. I catch food. Go home. Eat it. That's it. He says, that seems a little bit, uh, I don't know. It seems a little bit unmotivated. Like, 
What if you fished a little bit more than what you need and you sold some fish? Make some money. He says, all right. The guy says, and then what? He says, well, then you could maybe hire some other people to fish alongside you and create a whole fishing operation and then make a lot of sales. And then what? Then you could buy a boat and instead of fishing from here, you can go out into the, to the water and do other types of fishing and get more fish. And then you'll make more money. And then you could buy more boats and a fleet and a company and a whole thing. And then you'll be rich. And then you can retire. And then you can retire to an island like this. And then you can relax all day and go fishing. All right. He's like, well, I'm doing that already. You see where that went? Okay. So the point is, I'm sorry for speeding up through it, but I feel like I've said it before and you probably all know it anyway. The point is like this, you know, when it comes to money, so we want money. Why do we want money? We don't really want money. We want the stuff that we get with the money. We don't really want the money. The money is just a means to an end. Does that make sense? Yeah. The money is not the money. It's not about the money. So we want what the money can achieve. Like if we need something, we can get it because we have the money. So it's not about the money. Money is a means to an end. So look, if we were talking about writing our, our, personal, life sta- um, um, our personal life's mission statement, like a company will have a mission statement, right? A vision statement, a mission statement. So what's, what's your mission statement? What's my mission? As a human being, what's our personal mission statement? So we think about like what we want Right? What we want in life, what we really want out of life, and what we're here for. And that process would be a process of continually refining and going deeper, deeper, deeper as to what we really want. Right? Because we'll think, okay, this is what we want. And then we'll think, well, then, we'll, th- then it's healthy to ask the question, well, why do we want that? What's the purpose of that? And go, go deeper and deeper and deeper. So I'm saying this to explain the first two levels of want. There's what we really want, and that's the end. Right? Maybe it's happiness. Maybe it's love, but it's usually one thing, and that's the end of everything, right? You with me on that? And then there's all the other things that we want along the way because we want that because we know in order to get to those, or we think, or we believe, that in order to get to the really deep and true, like the end game one, we need other things that we want along the way. But all of those could be positive, and that's the first level, the second level of want, so there's let me give you some, let's do some Kabbalah. Give you some Kabbalistic terminology, Hebrew terminology. There's Pnimiyot HaRatzon. There's the essence of desire. In other words, what you really want. And then there's the Chitzoniyot HaRatzon. There's the outer, external dimension of what you want. So there's what you really want and what you don't really want, but you want in order to get what you really want. But, but both of those levels are things that you want. But then with God, there's something else. There's evil. And that, God doesn't even want that even in an indirect way. God needs it almost because in order to have choice, you need the opposite choice to exist. But God doesn't want it, right? It's not like when we want money in order to get the things that we want or need in order to be safe and secure and happy or whatever it is. Again, I don't want to go too deeply into that experience because that's a, that's a very deep conversation, inner conversation. But all of those things are potentially positive, right? 
the money, the food, the health, the happiness, content, like all that stuff is positive, but one is deeper than the next. But with evil, it's not another positive along the way to a deeper positive. It's a negative. You with me on that? That's why I say it's the third category. It's not what you really want. It's not what you want to get what you really want. It's what is begrudgingly needed. Again, I'm using that term begrudgingly. It's what it's what's begrudgingly needed in order to create an environment that is a certain way. All right. I think that's the best I can explain it. I hope it's coming across clearly. The point of all of this is that there's a different type of investment that God makes with what he wants and with what he doesn't want but needs in order to get what he wants or in order to have the environment as that will eventually be what he wants. There's a different type of investment. There's a different type of relationship. There's a different type of closeness. It's a completely different reality. What God really wants, he really wants, and he's really invested in. What God doesn't want but needs to do, it's almost a detached type of relationship. God is not super excited. Oh, let's make it like this. Let's make it so complicated. It's kind of, there's a detachment in that experience. Think about, I'm going to give you another example. Again, a human example. Just isolated for this last point that I just mentioned now, which is a new idea for this morning. The idea of, of the relationship. Not just there are things that God wants, um, almost wants, or doesn't want but needs, but the relationship between the creator and the energy that powers it and the thing that is either wanted or almost wanted or unwanted, there's a different relationship there. Let me give you an example. Again, don't relate it to the previous examples. Just keep this in isolation. Quick in and out example. There are things that you do that you want to do, things that you do that you don't want to do, but you have to do. Think about the energy that you invest, but not, a, not, not only the amount of work that you put in for, both of, for either of those categories, but think about also, not just the energy, think about the relationship that you have with those activities, right? Even if you're working hard but in something that you don't want to do, but think about the relationship, right? It's almost like there's a negative energy associated with the thing that you, not almost, there is an element of negativity associated with what you don't want to do even as you're doing it. So it's kind of like an energy, but it's a dark energy, or it's an absent energy, or it's a, it's a distant energy. Even as it's energized, even as you're putting energy into it, it's almost like, like a, a black hole energy. I don't know if that's the right, I don't mean to get too sci like scientifically accurate here, but it's the first word that came to mind. It's like an absence energy even as it is. Does that make sense? Whereas something that you want to do, that you're excited about doing, right? So you're fully invested in, you're present, you're excited, you're engaged, and you're, you're all in. So depending on the experience will also dictate the amount of presence, not just activity, but real engagement and presence in that experience. So we love giving, I love giving teaching examples, education examples. And the truth is, in the text we're going to read in a moment, he brings the example of a teacher and a student. So imagine you're a teacher. 
you have a class of fifth graders and you're excited about teaching. You're excited about imparting wisdom, facilitating learning. You're excited about the whole experience. And you love your students, right? You care if they're learning. You're not just doing it because it's a job. You're, you're doing it because it's a passion. You really care about education. You really care that these children should become, should have the tools that they need to become a wise and educated and good people. You really care about the kids, really care about your students. And so you're there every day and you're teaching and you're passionate and you, you really care. And if they know you're happy, if they, if they understand what you're saying, if they get it, you're happy. And if they don't get it, you're going to work to make sure they, they, they got it. You're, it's, you're in, there's full engagement there. That's one scenario. Another, another scenario is teacher's not invested in that way. The teacher, wh why? Because the teacher doesn't really care. The teacher doesn't actually really care if the students know the information, don't know the information, develop the, the, the skills, don't develop the skills. At the end of the day, the teacher doesn't actually care. It, it, it's not, teacher is not going to lose sleep over the fact that, that the students didn't understand or they did understand. It's not going to make the teacher feel happier or feel less happy. It's a job. The teacher is doing it, teaching, and that's it. Right? So even if no kids showed up that day, the teacher would still be teaching, and that's it, to an empty classroom, because they're teaching. Right? It doesn't matter if anyone's listening, the teacher is just teaching. Reminds me of the story of the, the fellows walking down the street, and he sees construction workers right, on the side of the road. One guy is digging a hole, and the other guy is right behind him, filling up the same hole. And he says, I've never seen, I mean, you know, government or city, whatever, inefficiency, whatever is one thing, but this is the next level. I mean, like one guy is literally digging a hole. They have the vests on, right? One guy's digging and the other guy's filling. So he says, What's go what, what are you guys doing? It seems crazy. He's like, look, we have three guys usually on the line, right? I dig and then, so one guy digs, the next guy puts down the pipe and the third guy fills it up. Just because the pipe guy is out sick today means we shouldn't work. Anyway, so sometimes somebody does something just to do it and doesn't care about the objective, right? That was a joke, obviously, right? Um, so imagine the, the different experience in the way the education is coming through. In one case, the teacher is almost there with the students in every word, in every example, in every... In every expression, the teacher is right there with the students, right? And, and, and in every word, you feel the full attention, presence, essence of the teacher. As the student, you feel that. That's one scenario. That's the first scenario. The second scenario, when you're the student, you're hearing words, you're hearing ideas, but the teacher is not there. The teacher is not connected. Why? Because the teacher is not connected. The teacher is not invested. So when so the, the, the point of this is that something can move from point, like energy can flow from one entity, from one person to the other. It can flow. But in one case, the energy will be carrying the essence of the individual toward the other. And in the second case, there will, there will be an energy flow, but it will be an absent 
It will be a hollow energy, hollow energy that is flowing. So there's still words, there's still words and ideas, and you know what? If it's math, it's the same formulas that are being spoken. But the teacher is not there. The teacher is not in it. This is how Kabbalah explains the existence of evil. Evil exists, and if it exists, it's powered by God. Because that's all there is to power things in this world. It's only, there's only God, and God's powering. If God's not powering it, it doesn't exist. So if there is the possibility for evil in this world, it means it's coming from God. <gasps> Gasp! Coming from God, evil comes from God? Uh-oh, that means that God is dot, dot, dot? This prompted other philosophies and religions to conclude that there are two forces, right? There's a positive and there's an evil. There's a negative force that are both equally high and weighted and, and, and sourced, right? That's not the Jewish approach. Strict monotheism means there's only one, only God, and only good. That's what monotheism is from a Jewish perspective. Not just one God, but a good God, one good God. So how does evil exist? So evil is the product. Evil is the product of God, not really wanting, but needing to create the challenge, the opposition, number one. And number two, because it's not really wanted, because it's the realm of the unwanted, but necessary, but because it's unwanted, there is not this close investment or presence of source in the energy that is giving it life. Does that make sense? Which means that when you look at it, you see that it is, it exists, but you also see that number one, it's unwanted, and number two, it's unwanted. In other words, number one, it's evil. It's not what we should be doing. Hopefully we can, we can recognize that at some level. And number two, it has been almost abandoned by the source. You will not find an investment, a real, close, essential, deep investment from the source, from God, in the evil. It will never be, it will never lead to that satisfying sense of closeness as choosing good does. And that's why, no matter how many times we get lured to, to the dark side, so to speak, I don't want to make it sound more dramatic than it is, but no matter how many times we try that as an option, it's never really satisfying. It never really fills the gap, the hole that we're trying to fill, right? No matter how pleasurable something is, either it fades pretty much instantly, or we kick ourselves later saying, oh, what was that all about? What was I thinking? What was I doing? And it certainly doesn't have that long, that, that eternal sense of, of, of contentment and pleasure as doing a mitzvah, doing something positive has. So even if in the moment 
there's like a lure. It's like, wow, that's so edgy, right? That's so alluring. There's an absence. Even as it exists, there's an existential absence because the way it's powered from the source, it is powered from the source. Even though it's unwanted, it's necessary. So it is powered by the source, but the power, for, but that, that, that power is not engaged in it. The energy is not engaged in it. It's disengaged from it. And you can tell. The student can tell when the teacher is not interested in teaching. And the, the realm of evil, there's a level of disinterest there from God. Because God doesn't really want us to jump into it. He's putting it there for us to avoid not to jump in. I run the risk giving all these examples and scenarios and, and, and using really, you know, contemp hopefully contemporary language. I run the risk of always, when teaching, of reducing deep concepts and maybe oversimplifying. I'm ready to take that risk so that we can understand what we're reading, right? And I think it's close. It's certainly not the full picture, right? But if you can imagine being in a class where you sense the teacher is not really there, right? Teacher's not really present. Teacher's lobbing words at you, but uh, so you get information, but you're not really getting, getting that, that bond. We can have some sort of understanding of what the, what, the, what the actual energy level of evil is. So yeah, it exists. It's real. It's needed by God on some level, but it's not, it's, not, it's not really alive. It doesn't have that vitality. It doesn't have that vibrancy, that inner energy that comes from the closeness of God that is in those things that God actually directly or even indirectly but positively wants. Okay. Questions or comments on... All of the examples and discussion up until now. Yeah, Steve. What makes it so savory? What, 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 what right. is it about yeah. nature or the, the challenges that Hashem set up for us that makes those so, inappropriate choices or dark right. choices so savory? So I think it's, that's the ultimate question or one of the ultimate questions. I don't know that I have a good answer for it other than saying something that you can probably imagine yourself, that God somehow creates it to look really, really enticing in order for it to provide a challenge. If God made it like this, oh, that? Oh, no, ooh, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I need to go there. That thing? Oh, that's ridiculous. Who would ever do that? It's like, imagine if the, you know, you're on the road and then there's like warning, danger. Well, people would still go down that you know, when you're on a hike and it's like, no, don't go that direction. That's like not, like, don't go there. Everyone's like, oh, cool. Let me just explore a little bit and like, you know, see what's going on. So I think part of it is probably human nature, like I'm touching on now. But a big part of it, probably the most essential part of it is that God does a really good job of creating this evil realm. And again, that's a very broad and nondescript term for all the stuff that is, Right. Um, creating it so that it is really, really enticing, really, really attractive, right? Really enticing, straight up. So why does God do it? Again, because then it, the, otherwise it wouldn't be a real challenge. So that means there's a lot of energy in it. Yes, 
yeah, it's re there is energy in it, and there's a lot of energy in it because it's, it's real, it's a thing. But God still doesn't want it. And that's why it will never really be satisfying. Because, because on an absolute level, there's no truth in it, it will never really be satisfying. Which is where, you know, the head kicks in and the eights are hard, the evil inclination and the animal soul, it's all part of that realm also, right? Evil is just, it doesn't have to be like super evil. It could just be, you know, anything that's against holiness. So part of that is like, well, because you didn't really jump in or you didn't do it enough or, right? So that's where the head gets in and, and the, the inner voice says, well, keep on trying it and it'll, it'll certainly you know, fill that void or feel better long-term or whatever. And of course it doesn't. And we know, we know what that feels like. But why is it so attractive? God does a really good job. God really does a good job. It's like that fake fruit. <laughs> it looks really good. It looks really, it looks better than the original. It's like, wow, that looks like an, where were my kids and I recently? And they saw like a basket and the kids were like, like, oh, is that like an apple or something? I'm like, I think it's fake. Like, but it looks really good. I'm like, yeah, it looks too good. Looks too good to be true. And, and it is. But where does it come from? It comes from God pulling that off. We wish that God would be a little bit more transparent, right? Not on after we do. Like, oh, shoot, that was not what I was expecting. But on the, you know, going into the scenario that it would be a little bit more obvious, but God doesn't tip his hand like that. But yeah, Tony. I, I'm not. I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but the klipa. Yeah, the, the you got that. Yeah. Thing that. Oh wait, hold on. Yeah, yeah. Unmute. Sorry. Um, you know, when, when you discuss klipa or the shells, is that similar or is that yes. the same thing? Same thing. Same thing. Yes, it's the same thing. So klipa is another word in Kabbalah that. Um, that refers to evil because evil sounds harsh. It does. It sounds very harsh. So a less harsh way of, of referring to it would be klipa. Klipa means the shell, the facade, that which is not really real. Well, I mean, it is really real, but that which is not really what we're meant to be pursuing. So yeah, that's the klipa. It's called sitra achra, the other side. All of these are euphemisms that are a little bit nicer than using the word evil all the time, which sounds little too dark. It refer and, and, and the truth is, it's not only the things that we would automatically call like evil. It's anything that's distracting would be for us, if we're, if we're meant to be in a certain place, then anything along the way that distracts us and pulls our, you know, leaks our energy away from where we need to be with our, for our purpose, that would all fall into the realm of what I was calling evil, but what God puts along the road to challenge us or to provide a challenge to distract us from where we need to be. So all of that would be in that category of Klippasitrachra. God doesn't really want us to be distracted. God wants us to be where we need to be. But God, again, almost needs it to be there or to put it there in front of us in order to provide the challenge to make the destination worthy of reaching, accomplishing, exhilarating, meaningful, etc. But yeah, that would be all part of the same thing. Susan. And also, I, um, to respond to Stephen, too, 
um, you know, I've read that the sages say that those sort of animal impulses or what they consider you know, yetahara is also what sort of is the, drives us to survive. So there is like a neutrality in that. It's just when we allow those forces to engage us that they take us, our wild horses, in a different direction. But yet we have to have those to you know, reproduce and to work and that energy actually, you know, uh, spurs us on in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. There is a lot of positivity in what we would call the natural, um, the animal soul has a tremendous, um, power and, and potential. The ego is tremendously, has tremendous potential. So all of those, you see, what's interesting, getting back, I want to combine now a few of these, a few of these discussion points. So Klippa, and what we're talking about now as far as channeling the, the energy, so Kabbalah specifies that there, are, that there are different forms of Klippa, different types of shells. There's something called Klippa Noga, which means a translucent shell. And then there's the Shalosh Klippa Tatameot. Then there are the three impure, completely impure shells. And that's really important to understand the distinction. The klipat noga, the translucent shell, refers to things that aren't obviously holy, but could become holy. Right? So, for example, the desire to eat, right, or to procreate, etc. Right? So those desires in and of themselves are not necessarily holy, but they could be holy, or they could lead us toward negative pursuits as well. So that's kind of like, in, ka- in kashrut terms, in kosher terms, we would call that parav, which means it's neutral. It could either go up or down, depending on how we in, on how we use it and how we jump into that experience. So it could be, it's the potential. It's like clay, and it's ready to be formed. We can either take that energy, take that experience, and elevate it or degrade it. That's our choice. But then there are things that are objectively unholy. There are straight up things that are objectively unholy and we're not meant to engage with them. Those were meant, as we're walking on our path in life, when we see them, we're meant to maybe salute or not salute. We're just meant to keep on walking. We're meant to say, you know, nod, tip the hat and say, have a good day. I have somewhere else to be. And, and, and these are two different experiences. In Tanya, he develops these two these two realms sharpens and, and really develops these two realms clearly. There are the things that we're meant to avoid and the things that we're meant to cautiously and mindfully engage in. So again, two types of klipa, two types of klipot. The, 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 the lower form of klipa, of, of the shell, which is, a she, which is that which is really evil, that which should be avoided, cannot be elevated can never be elevated. The other stuff can be elevated when used in a mindful way. The other stuff cannot be elevated. But of course, never say never, it can be elevated, but not in a straightforward fashion. It can be elevated in a reclaiming it after the fact fashion, which is what we call teshuva. So for example, somebody says, I'm going to do this thing and then utilize the energy for a positive thing. That's not... If it's evil, if it's unholy, then, then that, that energy cannot be elevated in a straightforward fashion. But if a person already walked down that path, right, and already gained that experience or that energy, whatever it was, 
and then now thinking about it recognizes that they that they don't want to be in that place and being in that negative place or having been in that negative place spurs the person motivates is a catalyst for them to get closer to god now then in truth that experience was a catalyst for growth and therefore it can again not and not lechatchila, not going into it, but after it's done, maybe the word is ex post facto. Is that how we say it in, in Latin? Is that it or no? All right, we'll leave the Latin for later. But at the end, bidiavid, once it's already done, through teshuva, which is basically using the energy of the distance, as a, using the, the, um, the angst of separation, of distance, of spiritual distance, as a catalyst, as a motivating factor to want to get closer and closer than ever before, well, then it can be the, uh, it, then that energy can be flipped for, for positive. It's kind of like in a relationship where somebody does something that, um, that creates distance between them and, and, and their beloved. And then in reflecting on that, is so bothered by the distance that exists, and so bothered by the distance that, that exists that they created, that they become even more dedicated, devoted, and overt, like obviously loving, like in a, in a demonstrable way, demonstrably loving to the other, and that passion, and that dedication, that love, that open, clear, obvious love is driven by the prior distance, or the prior you know, negative that existed, which means that for the relationship, the way it is today, the growth, the the, the depth of the relationship, on some level, one could say, looking back, that was the greatest thing that happened. Does that make sense? That negative was the greatest thing that happened in the relationship to lead to where we're studying. Now, that doesn't mean we should have done it, going into it. Yeah, let me do this so that I'll feel bad. And then we never go into it with with that in mind. But once something happens, we can use that energy or we can use the frustration or the, 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 the pain of that, of the result of that as a catalyst for a closer connection. Anyway, but that's all about klipa, different levels of klipa and, and the way in which it can or cannot be elevated. But the overarching point here is that there are things that God wants, things that God doesn't want but needs in order for there to be the things that he wants. And the energy level, or sorry, the presence of God in those things is much less than the ones that that God wants. In the language of Kabbalah, which we'll see in a moment in our text, it's like the divine energy in those unwanted things is trapped in it. So there is, obviously, if if it exists, there's divine energy that's powering it. Like I said before, nothing exists outside of that. And it has to be plugged into the source. If it's unplugged, like a hologram, poof, it disappears, right? You unplug the projector, you're not getting an image on the screen, right? It has to be plugged in. But as it's plugged in, as the energy is flowing from source to this evil or this unwanted realm, there's energy, but it's not fully present. It's not energetic, and it's considered to be almost trapped inside the realm that it is because... You don't see the source there. It's, it's, it's um, exactly, Adam, yeah. Right, Chuva lifts us up to an even higher status. The energy there is not in a direct way. Let me share my screen and let's read some of this inside as we begin discourse number three.
this is going to be really important and really powerful for us in our, um, in our conversation. Here we go. And as you see here at the top, the caption here is holiness versus Sitra Akra. The realm of holiness versus the other side. So he says, all this refers to the realm of holiness. What's all this? The idea of when we engage in something, we become closer to God and we feel the, the source, etc. All of this refers to the realm of holiness, where godliness is infused and radiates and is in turn totally subservient and attached to that godliness. Let me explain that for a moment. The realm of holiness is what God wants. Those are the choices that God wants us to, to take. That's where God wants us to be, right? So God, or godliness, just to go through the words here, it's very important. Godliness is infused and radiates. In other words, God is invested, and we use different words. God is invested because he wants it. And because he's invested, he's apparent. You, not a parent, but apparent, obviously seen in that realm. Like the teacher who wants to be there, who wants to educate, who wants to teach. And in every word, the teacher is there, fully present, fully radiating, fully shining. So the realm of holiness is where godliness, God's energy, is infused, invested, it radiates, it shines. Listen to this. It's one sentence, but it's not simple. Therefore, in turn, in turn, right, the realm of holiness itself this realm of holiness is in turn totally subservient and attached to that godliness. Because God is investing directly into that space, that space becomes transparent, if you will, to its source. Let me say it one more time. Because God wants that thing and is invested in that thing and shines and is radiating within that thing, that thing now becomes a perfect fit, if you will, for that divine energy. And it doesn't block or hide the energy. It openly reveals it. So there's two elements. Because the divine energy openly ra is radiant within it, so the, the realm itself clearly transmits or allows that to shine. It's like a hand and a glove that fit each other. The hand fits into the glove, and the glove fits, in, fits on top of the hand, and when the hand moves, the glove moves. Everything is working in perfect sync, right? S, Y, N, I guess, C, right? So the, the, the divine energy is flowing intentionally in a desired way, in a wanted way, and that thing is openly being powered by it. However, this is the contrast. But godliness does not enter into the Sitra Akra inwardly. It does not enter the same way in the Sitra Akra. God is not invested in the Sitra Akra on the other side of the evil. God is not invested. God needs to make it, but God is not invested, excited about it. Even if he's making it, as we said before, even if he makes it look exciting to us, 
God is not excited. God's not like, oh my, you'll never guess what I just created. They will never be able to, to, to resist this one, right? That's not how God is. It's not like God is like, oh, 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 really get them this time. God is not invested in an internal, inward, excited way, but rather is makif over it. What does makif mean? Makif means doing it, but detached. Makif means detached. So God is creating Sitra Akra, call it Klippa, evil, Sitra, it's all the same thing, right? God creates Sitra Akra, the other side, but is not invested, rather detached. It's like the teacher doesn't really want to be there. The Sitra Akra, why? Because the Sitra Akra is, quote, an abomination to God that he despises. Right? God does not actually want us to choose it. It's, this is referring to the evil part of the klipa, not the, not the neutral klipa, but the actual, like, not the unholy part of it. Endowed, it is therefore endowed with life reluctantly. Oh, I think I was even hesitant to say the word reluctantly, but here it says it clearly, right? It's endowed with life reluctantly. To clarify, God obviously needs it and on some level wants it, but it's still reluctant. As, the, as though, as if, God is casting it over his shoulder, cast to it over his shoulder. In other words, like, fine, all right, if I have to, right? Not like, yes, I'm so excited about, yes, I can't, I can't wait. It's like, oh, fine, so to speak. Hence, listen to this, hence, there is no inward investing in the Sitra Akra. The divine energy that goes into that realm is not invested and shining and radiant. And therefore, he doesn't finish it there. Give it a few paragraphs, but we need to get symmetry for our, for our own brains to, under, to wrap our minds around this concept. Therefore, listen to the therefore. Before I say the therefore, there's two, equa- there's two sides and they both have the equal parts in counterbalance. So with the realm of holiness, God is invested and because of that, as I mentioned a few moments ago, because God is invested in that thing, that thing is bottle. That thing is now subservient or transparent to it. That thing reveals the source because God is invested. So the thing itself, the realm of holiness, senses it, that investment and that shining, that radiance of God, and it further allows God to be radiating it through it. On the opposite side, right, when it comes to Sitra Akra, God is not excitedly invested in it. God is not, you know, manifest and radiating within it. Therefore, right, there's a second part of it. Therefore what? The realm of Klippa and Sitra Akra continues to hide this divine energy that is detached from it. Does that make sense? The divine energy that radiates in in holiness, so the realm of holiness further reveals it. But the divine energy that's hidden in the Sitra Akra, the Sitra Akra continues to further hide it. In other words, light leads to more light and darkness leads to more darkness. I hope that opposite equation is there, right? When God is invested, God is revealed, and the thing itself doesn't get in the way. When God is not as invested, so to speak, right? God is not so present, although God is certainly present, but God is not, God is more reluctant about it. God is not radiating within it. So the thing gets more in the way of the source. So not only is the source detached, but the thing itself 
further obscures the source. That's why when we look at evil, it's really an absence of God in that space. Although God is certainly there, but it's from both sides, godliness is being blocked. To illustrate, here we go. Here we give, here, now we have some human examples. To illustrate, when man desires something, when a human being desires something, he throws himself into it, clothes himself within it, binds himself to it, and unites with it. Right? A per, when, you, when you want something, you're all in. Fully present. You're excited. You're connected. You're fully invested in that. A, he gives an example of education. A father or teacher instructing a son or a pupil imbued with love toward the youth and eager that he should understand properly will invest himself and bind himself to the lad, conveying to him all the knowledge the latter can absorb in the clearest, most elucidative manner. What a beautiful sentence. Right? When we're excited about the student or about the child, we will invest ourselves. We care. Care about the child, you care about their education. And if you care about the child and you care about their education and you're teaching them, you're going to be fully present, completely engaged, and always focused on how to communicate better, more clearly, in a way that the student, the child, whoever it is, can understand it. That, that comes from love and attachment and a closeness. He will be concerned, the teacher, or the father, or the parent, whatever it is, he or she will be concerned that the youth's mind assimilate the material properly and that he master the subject. In other words, there's an investment, an outcome also. There's a concern. Concern doesn't mean like, oh, I'm scared. Concern means I care. I care whether the student, the child understands it or doesn't understand it. I'm not just doing my job and moving on. Oh, I taught my class, I'm out. I, the teacher cares that the students understand. Cares that it's understood in the student's mind. In contrast, right? The other, on the other hand, when a person is not eager for the business at hand, he does not enter it into it at all. He stands apart from it aloof. So when you're not invested, you might be doing it, but you're not there. Your hands are there, your mouth is there, whatever it is, you're functioning, but you, you are not there. So we have two different experiences. In the human example, right? This, this paragraph was to illustrate in human terms this concept. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a scenario where we're invested and we're there and there's a scenario where we're doing it, we're saying it, we're making sure it happens, but we're, there's a disconnect. There's a, there's, a, there's a screen in between us and what we're doing or the, or the other or the experience. Let's continue now back spiritually. Now we, ha now we have some human examples. Let's go back to God. Oops, sorry. Here we go. In the parallel on high, in other words, how does, this, how, do, how does this exist in the cosmic realms, in the spiritual realms? So he says, the realm of holiness is endowed with the face, the countenance of the divine will. In other words, in less fancy language, the realm of holiness is what God really wants. The countenance of the divine will means the face of divine will, divine will, i.e. what God wants. That means what God really wants. 
So holiness is invested with God's truest and deepest desire. God's will is revealed within it, permeates it, and is one with it. That's what God really wants us to do. God really wants us to engage in things that are amazing, that are healthy, that are spiritual, that are holy, that are connective. Right? That's what God really wants. That's where God really is. The Sitra Achra, however, on the others, the Sitra Achra, the other side, which is abhorred by God. God doesn't like it. God doesn't want it. God is making it, yes, but God doesn't want it, is not permeated by God's will, right? For the will is merely makif over it. You see the contradiction there? It's not, well, it's not a contradiction. He says it's not permeated by God's will. God's will is not invested in it. The will is makif over it. It's distant from it. So there's still will. God still wants it. I used, to make it clear, I used want, I used Wants versus needs, right? God wants the good stuff for us. God needs there to be the contrast to make things interesting. But here, again, in the Kabbalistic language, both are referred to as will. There's what God really wants and what God doesn't really want, but needs, as I said it. So that will, that divine will, is only makav, is distant. It's separated from it. It is God's will is removed from the Sitra Akra at a distance from it and not at all involved with it. Involved means invested. I don't like the word involved. It's not invested in it. There can be no talk of any form of unity with it. In other words, it's not like God's presence, God's love, God's holiness, God's energy is one and united with evil. You're never going to find that there. The Sitra Akra, so completely estranged from godliness, so separated from godliness, is essentially, not literally, but is essentially a state of actual death. Now, it very much exists. It's very much alive. It's very much a possibility it's very much, very much a choice. He's not saying it is not existing. It is existing, but it doesn't represent, sorry, it's not a space where God is there. So yes, it's being powered by God, but in a very distant fashion, very separated fashion, very unwanted fashion. And so even as it exists, it's not really alive. Remember last week we spoke about the rivers that dry up every seven years and it's not really a river. It's not real life if it dries up. This exists, but it doesn't really have vitality. It's like the teacher who's teaching, but it's not really there. So the words are being transmitted, but it sounds dead. There's no energy, right? It's like very robotic. It's not, there's no energy there. The minute amount of illumination of vitality it draws into itself from the hinder part of the transcendent holiness, right? And whatever little divine energy is flowing into it, right? The minute amount of it is in a state of actual exile within it, which is the mystical, in the mystical exile of the Shekhinah. There's a concept in Kabbalah called the exile of the Shekhinah. The divine presence is exiled. Now, 
How could God's presence ever be exiled? Who's strong enough to put God behind bars, right, in a, in a prison? Only God can. <laughs> no, no other force can imprison God. It's not like there's a kryptonite to God. No, God forbid. On the contrary, it's, a, it's God's choice to create something that he doesn't really want, but to create it anyway and to empower it anyway, even as he doesn't want it. And in doing so, there's an energy in that thing that doesn't really want to be there, which is what we call exile. Exile means that's not where I want to be, right? What is prison? I don't want to be there. I'd rather be free. It's not only free. I'd rather be able to express who I really am, what I really want. Prison is I'm conforming to another authority. I eat what they tell me to eat. I sleep where they tell me to sleep. I do what they tell me to do, right? Prison or exile means I'm not free and autonomous to express myself. God is not expressed in evil or through evil. God is expressed through holiness. God creates evil for a purpose, but God is not expressed by evil. In evil, God is exiled. It's self-imposed. No one is stronger than God, right? That's for sure. God is putting himself in a place where he doesn't want to be. He needs to be. He doesn't want to be. And, he's not, and, and, and evil does not express him. Let's continue. I want to do another. Um, give me a second. Let me see in my book where I want to go. I want to do one more paragraph. Perfect. This last, one, one more paragraph. Then we close it out. For this reason. Two. In other words, here's a second reason why Sitra Achra, the other side, why they are called other gods. Elohim Acherim, other gods. This will be the second reason that we're giving for the term other gods. What was the first? Parentheses. In Discourse 2, chapter 2, which is what we just read last week and the week before, it was explained that they are termed other gods due to the root of their nurture. In other words, due to where they come from. Because they come from the Acharayim, from the back of God, so to speak, like we said even a moment ago in this chapter, actually, that uh, begrudgingly God is reluctantly giving the energy to this realm of evil. I don't really want to, but I have to, kind of. So since it's from the back, it's not like, yes, it's not an embrace. It's kind of like, fine, take it. So therefore, it's called Elohim Acherim, coming from the back, not literally, but coming from the unwanted, reluctant space of God, so to speak. That was what we explained before, but now we have a new explanation. And you're thinking, isn't that what we're doing in this chapter? No, we did one more thing in this chapter. Take a look. Here, the reason is the intrinsic nature of the Sitra Akra. And the two reasons are complementary, but let's understand what this reason is. Here we go. Other gods... Ah, can't just highlight that for some reason. Other gods, Elohim Acherim, is a synonym for idols. Right? It's a euphemism for idolatry. Elohim Acherim means other gods, other deities, idols. And it refers to denial of the oneness of the King of Kings, the Holy One, Blessed Be He. It's basically attributing power, force, energy to something other than God. It's saying, well, there's God, 
But there's also a Lekimacher, there are also other gods. Like, I believe in God, but I really need this other thing to work out in order for me to be okay. Like, I believe, I totally believe in God, but I really need this other thing to work out. Subtly, Kabbalah says that's a form of idolatry, right? Because as much as I believe in God, I also believe in whatever. Hollywood, Wall Street, whatever else, whatever other force there is that I really need to work out, as opposed to pure monotheism, which is there are no other forces. It's only God. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to sit back and say, well, God's going to fix everything. God could, but I also have to, have to invest, but I don't attribute power to what I'm doing. I attribute it as God wants me to invest and make a vessel for the blessing, so I'm going to do that, but I don't attribute power to the vessel. Does that make sense, the distinction between the two? There's, there's doing what I need to do versus thinking that that now has power to create. An example, quick example, very quick example. You're at a, um, you're at a, uh, whatever. I, I'm, I don't want to get too carried away with examples. Basically, we're meant to create vessels to hold the blessings. So yeah, we go to work and we have to invest and say, what, all the stuff that we need to do, we got to create a cup to hold the divine blessing because that's God wants us to, to catch it. How should he give it to us otherwise? A total miraculous God wants us at least to do that effort. But to think that this cup is the source of the blessing, it's like, oh, I'll give you an easy example. It's like, the, it's like I'm looking at my kitchen now. It's like the, the sink, right? So you, you turn on, you open the faucet, the spigot, whatever it's called, right? You open the thing and water comes out, right? Water is not coming from the little handle thing that you, that you just did. That's not where water comes from, right? Water is coming from a source, if this is opening and closing the valve, but that's not where water is coming from. So what we do is we can open and close valves, but that's not where the blessing, that's not where the power is, right? Because if there's no water coming into your house, you can open that thing from today to tomorrow. There's no water coming out, right? It, you need the source. That's, you need the source. So other gods, other gods is a synonym for idols, which is denying the oneness of, of God. What does it mean to deny the oneness? It means to say that there's not just one, there's two, right? God is powerful, but also my boss, right? Whatever it, whatever it is that we, that, we, that we believe has power, right? That's taking away from God's oneness. I told you monotheism, Judaism's monotheism is really, really monotheistic. No games here. It's, it's purely, there's one source, one power. Now, because the divine light and vitality is in a state of exile within it, in the realm of, getting back to the realm of evil, we said that God is not fully invested and present and excited about being there. God does it begrudgingly, reluctantly, like over the shoulder. So because the divine light and vitality is in a state of exile within it, therefore, the second point, we had two points in this chapter. So there's from the top down and from the bottom up. So from the top down, it could be invested. And then from the bottom up, it's, that's, that's, that's transparent. Or from the top down, it could be not invested, and then from the bottom up, it's also blocking it. So because the divine line of vitality is in a state of exile within it, then matching it step by step, it is not it. The realm of Klip and Sitra is not at all subservient to the holiness of God. And therefore, it further blocks God and says, I don't know about God, but look at me. 
I exist, why don't you try some of this? That's what we call Elokim Acherim, other gods, things that are propping themselves up as their own forces, even though, and this is where it's so bizarre and contradictory, it's propping itself up as a thing, even though it's the absence of a real thing. Conversely, the realm of holiness illuminated with the presence of God is in a state of nullity. In other words, it's totally transparent before the godly light and vitality. So I think it's really important. I'm going to stop right now, stop sharing, and we're going to close this out. But it's really important to emphasize the two points of this chapter. And for, the intro, for my introduction, my, my I guess, long uh, um, kind of setting this up, I really focused on the first part of it. But there's a second part of it that is just as important. And that is that the first part of it is that God either wants it or doesn't want it, but kind of needs it anyway, right? So that's on God's end, right? God either wants it or mm, it's unwanted. But then there's the second half of that. It, when God wants it, God is invested. And because God is invested, the thing itself that's being created by this light feels the presence and therefore it meets that openness on its end too and is open to its source. So when you look at it, you see its source on all the levels. The source is open. It's open to the source. Everything is a transparent experience. So you see it. It's holy. It's divine. It's spiritual. It's beautiful. It's meaningful. It just is holy. The Sitra Akra, the other side, is completely different. It's reluctant. From the energy level, from divine energy level, it's unwanted. It's reluctant. It's needed. Got to have the contrast in life. Got to have that contrast, that option. But it's unwanted, reluctant, begrudging. And therefore, the thing itself that's being created by this, where the divine energy is in exile, self-imposed exile within it, it itself doesn't feel the source. It itself then feels itself and further hides and obscures the source that is exiled within it. And what happens, therefore, is it props itself even more as that which is a separation from God. So on both levels, it is called other gods. It's other because it's coming from, from a reluctant place within God. And it's, other, and it's other because it proclaims itself to be other because it itself doesn't even feel its source because the source is disconnected from it. I hope that makes sense. So what's the moral of the story? We don't want to end on a negative note. The moral of the story is life is challenging by design, right? And we each know in our own, in our own lives, I think more or less where we need to be. We know our purpose. Everyone has an individual purpose. No one that's ever lived before or will ever live after has had your specific purpose. And your purpose is a combination of your talents, abilities, opportunities, everything that you have today, right now, that is your purpose. Right, where you are, who you are, how you are, everything combines to, to make your purpose. And we all have a purpose. And to one extent or another, we know what that is, more or less. And then we have all these other things on the side that kind of like, as we're walking on our path, <laughs> that jump out at us and say, hey, try this. Or hey, let's do this. Let's get distracted. And we have to remember in today's from today's discussion that all of those things aren't real. Yes, they exist. They most definitely exist, but they're not really real, right? They only exist as a shadow to the light, as the back of the cup 
to the inside, one second, to the inside of the cup. They only exist <coughs> to provide contrast and meaning. And like I said, I think I said this last week, when we know that, when we know that it only exists as the contrast, as the foil, as the abbot to our castello, or no, that's a bad example. When we know that it only exists as, as yeah, as the, the thing to, to, to drive the energy even more, when that's the case, yeah, one second, then that will help us avoid it and let go of that experience. You are so excited. First of all, come say hi. Yes. Okay, I can, I'll be with you in a minute. I'm just finishing up the class and I'll be right with you. All right, so what's the, what's the moral of the story this week? Let us, it's, this is a good thing to do. I talk, talked about personal mission statements before. Let's identify a goal, a spiritual goal for this week. Not something we're already doing, but something that's a little bit further down the path. Let's put a marker, like in golf, you know, you have like the hole with the flag. Let's, let's create, not, don't make it like, you know, 400 yards away. Make it, Make it accessible this week, right? Create that hole, put up that flag, and know clearly what I want to do this week. A mitzvah, a, a good Torah study, prayer, some, something positive that we can do this week that we haven't been doing yet or maybe further than, than where we are currently. And then notice as we walk toward that goal this week, notice the challenges from outside, but most importantly from inside. Feel the resistance. Feel the resistance. And then meditate on the fact that this resistance, number one, is designed for my benefit. To provide a challenge for me to overcome. To provide the, uh, the obstruction for me to go around, over, through, whatever. And then let's remember that even the divine energy that's making this thing a possibility doesn't want to be there. <laughs> And is not really there in an expressed way. And that all can help us stay focused on the task at hand. May we always focus on the destination, keep our eye on the prize. And remember that when the challenges come our way, like Haman in the Purim story, which we're going to read Thursday night and Friday, with the Megillah in the, in the book of Esther, like Haman, the bad guy in the story of, uh, of Purim, right? what seems like, like an impossible challenge to overcome in one moment, in one moment can be transformed to the completely opposite when you realize that that which is the opposition is really hollow on the inside. All it takes is us to push against it and it will fall away. Because at the end of the day, when the danger appears, we have to know one thing. The queen is a sister. She's Esther. We were never in danger to begin with. It only seemed like that. It only seemed like that from the outside. We have to know the truth. This evil, this challenge, it's God. It's God manifesting an opportunity for us, but not something to actually succumb to. May this inspire us to walk securely on our paths and accomplish great things. I thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah and Coffee. Shavuot Tov, have a wonderful week, and I will see you soon. All right. Shavuot Tov. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you, Mariana. I don't think I said hi earlier. Um, great to see you. Hey. How's everything? Everything is good? Yeah, it's good. And we are in the south now. 
of, of Chile and uh, everything is a little close but but we are close to nature and beautiful class because that's give me more more power to to connect and always is, is great I have a question sure yeah when when we connect with with um, a, 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 a photo of, of somebody like a, a big rabbi or some I, I'm I'm saying about that with, with what we connect with with the energy that it's a bridge for for the connection with with God or it's always I, I ask because I feel some energy but always I feel like I don't have to do that or it's strange to do it or or but it, it's a great it's a great question so I get I, I get asked that question um, sometimes you know I mean pandemic now, you know, not, people aren't really coming over, but, you know, back in the day, people come over, they see a big picture of the, of the Rebbe, of the, the, the Rebbe in our house. So what's the, what's the deal? So if I'm in, you know, if, it depends on what mood I'm in to, to answer the question differently. So sometimes we'll say like, look, you know, people put up their, 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 their Zaydi, their Bubby, you know, some family members. So the Rebbe is, is so close to us that, um, that, that, that we put it up. So that's, that's, that's on one level. And that's true. But the, the, the thing is like this, it's, and it's very important to remember that a tzaddik, right, is not about getting in the way of our connection with God. It's not an intermediary. It's like us and God, to, in order to get from us to God, we need some help in the middle. That's not at all what a tzaddik, what a real tzaddik is. Like the, the best example is the first leader of the Jewish people, which is Moshe, Moses, right? Moshe. So Moshe... What was his quality? He was the most humble person, which means he didn't get in the way. So a true leader is someone who is not between us and God, but think of it this way. Imagine we're trying to climb a mountain and it's very hard. You have somebody that's, that's behind you kind of pushing and encouraging you and say, you can do it. All you need to do, look, 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 I'll tell you what to do. Take your, I don't know, I've, I don't really mountain climb, but, you know, take your, your thing, I don't know what it's called, your hooks, not, probably not hooks, but take it, put it over there, put your foot, what you want to do is put your foot over there and hold on over there, and then you'll be able to, so somebody that's, that's, um, that's uh, um, encouraging us and guiding our connection with Hashem but not getting in the way. So a picture is just another way of being inspired and connecting, not with, you know, not that our connection to God goes through a tzaddik, but that the tzaddik inspires us <coughs> to, to, be, to be the best that we can be. In other words, to be, to grow and to climb in the best way possible. So it's kind of like, you know, the example that I would give is like when we study Torah. Right? So Torah is not getting in the way of us and God. It's inspiring us to get closer. So for somebody that had a, a, a close relationship with a, with a tzaddik, and the tzaddik inspired them you know, in incredible ways, ha- see, seeing a picture, having a picture of the tzaddik in, in, in one's home is, is a reminder of that inspiration and can keep a person inspired in that way. And that's a very positive thing. Yeah. Beautiful. I love, I love that idea and, and, and thank you very much. My pleasure. I have to show you, along those lines, I have, to show you, I have to show you a few things. So number one, I have to show you. 
this picture, which I love. It's in my, it's, it's in my living room. And then I have to show you another picture. Give me a second. Another picture. This is Kabbalah, coffee, and portraits. All right. Oop. Let me get the, the right lighting over here. Hold on. So I'm balancing some things. Hold on. I want to. Wow. Can you guys see that? Or is it reflecting too much? Yeah. So that's when I was bar mitzvah. That's me getting called to the Torah right next to the Rebbe. Wow. Very inspired. 1992. So this is a picture that I have in my home. And whenever I walk by it, and whenever I look at it, whenever I think about it, I can't help but be just extremely inspired. Because, you know, here, here I had the opportunity to get called to the Torah right near the Rebbe. Such a, a, an inspiring person in my life. And it's, it's an incredible... Um, it's, it, yeah. it, it inspires. It doesn't get in the way. It, it, it encourages and inspires me personally to, you know, to keep on doing and to, and, and to, to, to just keep on going, to keep on, keep on yeah. moving forward. It's beautiful. It inspired me to connect with my life and with my life. I connect with, with, with the big energy. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly the point. I mean, the point of all of this, right? Um, I can just speak about the classes and, and everything that we do is, is not about, it's not about replacing anything or getting in the way of anything. It's about in inspiring all of us to, get to continue our personal journeys with Hashem and to get closer. Like I said, you know, like the work for the week is identify your, your um, goal for this week. And, and hopefully, hopefully this class and our conversations today help all of us, myself included, be a little bit more inspired and motivated to get closer to our own, our own personal goals, spiritual goals, and get a little bit closer to our source. And that's, that's what it's all about. But it's very, it's, very, um, it's very significant. But everyone has their own way of connecting and their own way of... And so for one person, it's you know, a picture of a tzaddik. For another person, it's um, whatever it is. But everyone has their own... So there's no one right way to do anything. But it's, it's all about the same objective, which is getting closer. Amen. Amen. And thank you very much. Pleasure. Pleasure, pleasure. Pleasure. Good to see you all. I want to wish everybody a wonderful week. And um, tomorrow night we have jewelry making with Donna, which is really exciting. And we have also... What else do we have this week? We have... A Tuesday night class, Journey of the Soul, Wednesday night special Purim edition of Torah Studies at 7.30. Special Purim class. I'm calling it <coughs> Take Off the Mask. Don't worry, it's not a Corona class. It's a class about the Purim masks. So we'll talk about that Wednesday night at 7.30. And then Thursday night is the holiday. So uh, an exciting week for everybody. All right. Good, good, good. We'll see you all. Have a great week. And stay healthy. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Rabbi. Bye. Bye.